We've been looking at uh, Colossians this month, and we are in chapter 3, chapter 3 of Colossians. And we saw in chapter 1 about the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ, the sovereignty the, that he is complete, and also about his work, which is sufficient. He continues on that topic, on to chapter 2. And then he talks about the dangers, and when you add to this work that Christ has done, not to his sovereignty, or when you take away the dangers. And we also saw the marks of a spiritual Christian in that chapter 2, in that we gathered. I'm not sure how many of you remember that, um, but the first one is... One of the marks is he is somebody who knows Christ. There's this increasing knowledge about Christ. And then second, we said not just that he knows, but that he also grows. He also grows. And then third, we said he is a person who is grateful, abundant, gratitude. And then the fourth one, we said he is a satisfied Christian. All right? I hope you remember that. It doesn't seem like, but that's what it was last week. All right? And so this week, what he, what's happening is he is saying, listen, that is theology proper. Now let's look at theology practical. He's saying it's no good just knowing. You need to start growing. It's not just information, but it must be transformation. And that's important. And we need to get that. And so chapter 3 is essentially going to talk to us about that, about how a surrendered life is just the beginning. You've given yourself, you've come to know the Lord is just the beginning, but now that you know of him, you know that he is so complete, the, 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 you know, the fullness of Godhead dwells bodily in him. And so you be complete in him. And so if you're going to be complete in him, there's also a need that you'd be active, you'd be participative, you'd be involved and we want to see what is it that you and I are called to do as a result of what Paul is writing this book of Colossians. And, he, and um, he has this theme constantly because even Titus, when he's writing to Titus, of course, and he's writing about Cretan or to those in Crete, he says in chapter 1, verse 16 of Titus, he says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. They act like they know him. You know, that's, you know about him, but their actions, their works, have got no bearing on their belief. And that's a dangerous thing. And Paul wants us to understand that. So he, we're going to keep our eyes open as to what is it that Paul wants us to do. And so before we start, I just want to give you the chapter divisions of chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 4. I want to call it the new outlook, the new outlook. And verses 5 to 13 is the new wardrobe, the new wardrobe. 
And verses 14 to 17 is the new adorning. And verses 18 and also chapter 4 to verse 6, past chapter 3, it's the new practice, new practice. And so that's where we get our title from, Christian, you have a new practice. And so in all this, as we see, we're looking at the new outlook, the new wardrobe, the new adorning, and therefore, and also the new practice, all right? So uh, coming to chapter 3, if you will see in some translations, it starts with a therefore, or it starts with an if, it starts with... Um, Paul is saying, if all this is true, if you've heard about all that is true in chapters 1 and 2, then, then, then there's something that needs to be done. The therefore, there, there is to be the, the change that must happen as a result. Uh, the, Warren Wiersbe has this quote, and I want to read to you about this quote. And he says, pagan religions of Paul's day taught little or nothing about personal morality. A worshiper could bow before an idol, put his offering in the altar, go back to the same old life of sin. What a person believed has no direct relationship with how he behaved. Do you understand what he's saying? In those times, essentially, you could go bow down to your idols, do whatever you want, and then walk away from there and have nothing to do with your personal morality. You can just go live the way you want to live. And Paul is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Your belief must be who behavior. Your doctrine must demand a a duty. We can't just say we know and just leave it at that. Senator Hubert Humphrey was asked once, why did he take a stand on a particular issue? And this is what he says. In politics, how you stand depends on where you sit. If you're a Democrat, you would think and act and vote like a Democrat. If you're a Republican, that's what you do. Even in politics, they want allegiance. Even in politics, they demand alignment. And so if we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, then our stand must match that. And so... Therefore, he begins with us, therefore, but therefore, what? Keep seeking. Therefore, keep seeking. Paul is saying, listen, this is a hot matter. This is a hot issue. You need to keep seeking because what it says, seeking the things above where Christ is. Where Christ is. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says it so beautifully in Matthew chapter 6, 21. He says, where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you treasure is what you will seek. And if your treasure is Jesus Christ, then what his heart is saying is what you will seek. Seek the things above where Christ is. Is what Paul is starting with. I have this um, little quote by uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. You, you know how she had this accident and she's a paraplegic. And she writes in this book, Heaven, Your Real Home. This is what she says. What he seeks and what he desires truly will be evidenced through his behaviors. You can't say, I believe this, if your, if your behavior evidences something else. 
when a Christian realizes his citizenship is in heaven, he begins acting as a responsible citizen of earth. He invests wisely in relationships because he knows they are eternal. His conversations, goals, and motives become pure and honest before because, sorry, he realizes that these will have a bearing on everlasting reward. He gives generously of time, money, talent, because he's laying up treasures for eternity. He spreads the good news of Christ because he longs to fill heaven's ranks with his friends and neighbors. All this serves the pilgrim, well, not only in the earth, but on earth, for he serves everyone around him. What he's saying, what she's saying is this, that if, if you start to believe that you are a citizen of heaven, if you keep seeking things in heaven where Christ is, then your impact, your influence, your desires, the way you would act would be so transformational that even people around you would be impacted. And I think that is true. What Joni is saying is essentially what um, Paul is beginning to tell us in chapter 3. And so really, before we look at it, I just want to say this, that your real test is this. What you desire most is what you treasure most. What you treasure most is, is how your behaviors act out. And so watch yourself. Watch yourself. But then verse 2, it says, set your mind on, on this Keep thinking, not just your heart, not just set your heart, not just your heart thing, but it's also a mind thing, that you'd be mindful. Why? Because for you have died and your life is hid in Christ. Who has died? Who has died? You have died. You have died. You know, we understand this thing that Jesus died for us. We understand that. That's substitution. That's great. But now Paul is saying, not just substitution, there's this issue of identification that you be dead in Christ. We are thankful for substitution. We are thankful for salvation. But now there's something called sanctification where you're saying that I'm going to be dead in Christ. It's not about me. And so you have died and your life is hid in Christ. Christ. So the first one is that we are delighted that we have a substitute, but the second one is about this discipleship that we have. And I want us to understand that both of them need to come together. Your life is hid. Your life is hid. Think about that. Your life is hid. Your life is hid in Christ. Uh, true, what it says is it's talking about salvation. And, and if you read that verse in verse uh, 3, it says your, your head with Christ, head with Christ in God. I, I want you to get this imagery, right? Really, can you think about it? You and Christ, and then you're wrapped up in, and you're head in God. Talks about salvation, but think about the security. Who can pluck us away from God? Who can? Nobody. Because our life is hid with Christ in God. That's a double reinforcement. But then also when we think about your life is hid, I want you to get the picture. You're, you're not seen. You're hid. You cannot be seen. It should be Christ, isn't it? Your head. 
I think about this as the, um, the eclipse. You know, you have those lo- lunar eclipse where the earth casts a shadow on the moon, but then you also have this solar eclipse where the moon comes and hides the sun. We've seen some of them. And sometimes we live a life without solar eclipse where the sun of God is hid in the way we live our lives. We go about our lives with a solar eclipse. But your life should be hid. But then that word head is also, interestingly, is also a word used for growth. It's like taking a seed and hiding it in the soil so that it would grow. That's also an imagery that you get as being head with Christ. Then it goes on to say in verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ, who is your life. Christ, who is your life. You're not just dead with Christ. You're not just raised with Christ. You're not just, you know, uh, that your life is hid with Christ, but that he is your life. Your life is not your own. Christ was your life. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the living God? You're not of your own, but you've been bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. You're not of your own. If Christ is our life, I... I try to understand what that really means, okay? This is how I look at it. If Christ is my life, you see, we come alive to, we, what makes us come alive is what our life is all about, right? What is that one thing that re- really draws us? What, what are we so passionate about? I don't know if it's sports or if it's some movies or it's some, you know, the levels we reach in the video games. I don't know, we just get so excited talking about it. If Christ is our life, then does he excite us? And then we say, we also use this phrase, that's my life. You know, I'm married to him, that's my life. Or sometimes in a good way, you know, you talk about your son, your daughter, this is she or he is my life. Or sometimes you say about your job, this is that's my life, and that's, that really is terrible. Your job is your, is your life. But think about it. As a Christian, you, Paul is saying, Christ is your life. And Paul was able to say that. Where does he say it? Do you remember where Paul says Christ is his life? Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he says out here, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And so we have this new outlook, our eyes fixed on him, our eyes fixed on the things up above. 
But then there's also the new wardrobe, verse 5 to verse 13. We have a new wardrobe. But interestingly, what it is is you need to dress your part. That's what it is. Okay, what Paul is saying, listen, if you've got this new life in Christ, if you've got this new master who's Christ, if the Lord is your master, then you need to have a new, you have a new wardrobe. You need to dress your part. And from verse 5 to verse 13, he says there are five parts to this wardrobe, five parts, okay? So let's look at that. First is, um, in verse 5, he says there are things that we need to eliminate, modify or kill, that verse might be. Verse 8, there are things that we have to put off. Verse 10, there are some things that we, we are clothed already. Verse 10, verse 12, there's something that we need to put on. And then verse 14, there's something that we have to adorn. We look at each of that step by step, all right? Step one is verse 5 and 6, there are things that we have to put to death of our old nature. The, the earthly nature in us needs to be put to death. That's a strong word. You know what Paul is saying? You become the spiritual James Bond. You got the license to kill. Put to death. Modify. Don't be gracious to your earthly life, your earthly nature, sorry. If you come home... Uh, Joyce does not allow anything non-human to be alive at home. And I'm talking about bugs and insects and all of that. Do you see any of that? It's between Dan and I. We have to kill it. She's got insectophobia or bugophobia, whatever it is. But let's have that. To this earthly nature, the old nature, constantly modifying it that we would kill the old nature. And just so that we, we, we can know clearly what it is, he goes on to talk about it in verse 5, what some of the exa- <coughs> examples of this old nature are. Sexual immorality. Uh, it, the, the word that's used is pornea, from where we get the word pornography. We've been, we've been talking about it on Fridays and how that is such a deception Impurity, moral uncleanness, which is what impurity is all about, anything morally unclean. Shameful passion, a state of mind where we keep ourselves in a mind where it can excite these sexual, this immoral activity. You know, we, 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 we create that environment for ourselves, and then we trip and fall, and we are surprised. But that is one of that, shameful passions. Evil desire, having a wrong desire, and not just that, a greed, having an excessive desire. It says, which is idolatry. Well, we know idolatry is what? Giving worship to the devil directly or indirectly. See, the devil wanted that the very first, you know, since the beginning of time, doesn't it, didn't he? And so when we, when we feed our old nature, when we don't kill and modify and remove and, and, you know, make us nothing, this old nature, what we're really doing is we are giving to the devil the worship that he's been seeking. And that's, that's what idolatry is about. 
eventually, directly, indirectly. You might think, oh, okay, no, you know, money is my idol, I understand, but that's just money, we need money, we can rationalize, but at the end, what worship doesn't go to God will always go to the devil. And so we need to modify the old nature. But not just that. In verse 8, it says you need to put off your old nurture. Not just your nature, but your nurture. And nurture is this. Nurture is any of the works of the flesh. The understanding of what this flesh you know, calls us to do, even that needs to be put off. Now, this list continues from verse 5 and then jumps to verse 8, and the list continues there. But if you will see there that, that he puts out anger. One is anger. There's the stewing that happens in our hearts. There's the simmering constantly. That, that's anger. But then you also have rage. This is the outburst that we have sometimes, you know, just given to that emotion, and then you have this rage. You have malice, which is a desire of vicious thoughts or desire to hurt. You have slander, which damages character, which is falsehood. You have abusive language. Abusive language, that's spiritual halitosis, spiritual bad breath, or worse than that. And so he lists those out as the things that we have to put out. And then the last, you know, he, he puts lie there. Lie is the, one of the things in verse 9, along with the list, he puts lie as a separate category. And I was thinking about it. You know, why, we, we sometimes make light of lie, do we not? We rationalize it. I was reading an article, um, and you can, you can Google it, and I'd really like you to, uh, get down to reading that if you can. It's called The Ways We Lie by Stephanie Erickson. The Way We Lie. And she says, living with truth has consequences. It's if you're going to be truthful, if you tell the truth, your bank is going to overcharge you because they realize, you know, oh, yeah, okay, they're going to overcharge. There's going to be cost. There's going to be cost if you tell the truth. But she goes on to say, lies worse. There are some of the quotes here, and I'll just read that. Uh, R.L. Stevenson, she quotes R.L. Stevenson, Treasure Island. The cruelest lies are often told in silence. When we think we're not saying the truth, and that's okay, he is saying that that's a lie. And there's the other one by Bergen Evans. And he says this, a man who won't, won't lie to a woman has very little consideration for her feelings. I think uh, he's a married man. He understands what he's saying. You know, every man knows, how do I look, honey, is the dangerous ground. But then he's asking this. So are there, uh, she's asking, Stephanie's asking this question, are there times when we can we can lie. Is this something called white lie? That's okay. And she says this, a white lie assumes that the truth will cause more damage than a simple harmless untruth. So we become the arbitrator, we become the judge, thinking that if I tell the white lie, I'm actually helping the cause. I become, therefore, the one who decides what's good for the other person, and that's 
uh, arrogance, as she calls it. And she goes on to give an example about uh, a Vietnamese, uh, um, an American sergeant in, in the Vietnam War. One of his soldiers died. But he made the report that he was missing in action, and he thought he was doing a favor because if you're missing in action, you continue to get this indefinite compensation. But if you're dead, then you just get the spittin's one-time compensation. So he thought he's doing them a favor. But 20 years later, the family could not move on, still living in anticipation that this person is going to come. White lies. But the truth about lie is this. That we either are part of the Lord or be part of the liar. Because John 8 says the father of lies is the devil himself. And we often rationalize. We think that that's okay. We want to protect ourselves. We want to be, you know, I, I don't want people prodding into my life or whatever your reason be in trying to protect, in trying to defend whatever the cause be. We have assumed that telling a lie is okay. We have fallen to the lie of the world. Because in verse 9, this is what he says, right? He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with its practices. Like Lazarus, who was raised again from the dead, needs to have his grave clothes put off. And that's something that we ask to do. So there are two putting off. One is that old nature that we have to keep killing. There's also this the manifestations, the flesh of the world that we have to keep putting off. Not just, so it's like, you know, I want you to think of you, uh, think of yourself as this makeover, right? You've got, you've got this new uh, customized designer suit you want to wear, but you have to take off what you've got on. And that's what Paul is saying, the things that you need to take off before you can don, don yourself. So step three is in verse 10, that you're clothed with a new man. You're clothed with a new man. Being clothed with a new man that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. This is about your nature, isn't it? This is your baseline for conformity to Christ. You've been clothed. If you're in Christ, if you belong to Christ, you have this new nature. But that new nature has been renewed to, what, what does it say? To, according to the image, renewed in knowledge, according to the image of the one who created it. And this is how I think about it, right? I mean, I got this good toolbox, um, the drilling set and everything like that, and, but I have to charge my batteries, but I had this old kit here. Every time I use it, I break the screw head. I, you know, it just messes with the whole thing. But then if I have to use this new toolkit, I have to recharge the battery or I have to charge the battery. I have this, you know, I uh, think about this as this Chernobyl nuclear uh, reactor, right? Oh, we've spent so much money. Let's continue to use that. But it's spewing cancer. And then you have the option of this new nature has been renewed according to the image of the one who created it. And, and that there will be this renewal that, that happens as we increase in knowledge. We looked at chapter 1, chapter 2. Essentially, that's what it's talking about. So then in 
uh, verse 12, it says this new nature that he speaks about in verse 10, this new nature in, in verse 12, it says clothe yourself, clothe yourself. I want you to notice the difference between the tenses in verse 10 and verse 12. In verse 10, it says, you have been clothed. It's a past tense. It's, it's your salvation. You've always, you already got it. Now, in verse 12, he's talking about clothe yourself. It's, it's a present continuous. It needs to continue on. It's not a one time. It's not a one time. These, this is the nurture. So the verse 10 is the nature, then you have the nurture. The, you have to nurture. You're renewing this old man as you put on these virtues that you get in verse 12. And what is it? A heart of mercy, a heart of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Mercy, humility, uh, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God's giving us a designer label so that we could, we could have this increasing conformity to Christ. Well, I don't know if you've heard of ETAs. Elvis tribute artist. I'm not talking about expected time of arrival or whatever thing. But ETAs, Elvis tribute artist. People who impersonate Elvis. They either dress like him or they sing like him or sometimes it's in combination. They dress like him and sing like him. I'm not sure if you knew that there were 85,000 such people around the world. They meet for festivals, events, and all of those. But the truth is they might impersonate him as much as they want, but Elvis has left the building. He's left the earth, in fact. But when God is asking us to don this, this cloth, this wardrobe that he's saying, it's not just that we can impersonate him, but so that we can be like him. We'd be conformed like him. One day when I see him, I'll be like him. I don't know what that means, but I'm okay because I'll take God at his word. I'm not just trying hard to be what like Jesus, what would Jesus do? Like Jesus doing that, okay, let me try with my No, it's not about what would Jesus do. It is that he conforms me to his image. Being renewed in the inner man and putting on these new these virtues, sorry. And then we have this new adorning. In verses 14 to 17. That's your step five. It says keep adding in verse 14. To these virtues add love. Because love is the binder. It's the one that it puts you in complete harmony. Right? I, I was looking at another sweater today to wear. And then suddenly I said no I can't wear that because there's no harmony. And if you don't wear love, you have a spiritual wardrobe malfunction. Above all, put on virtue. And the thing, I'm sorry, put on love. The thing about this love is that, that it, it creates harmony both as a person and in the community. It's love that binds. You read that in verse 14. Binds everything together in harmony. If we were to uh, borrow from 
Peter, he says, adorn yourself, adorn yourself with love. Well, someone said, you know, you're not dressed till you wear a smile. But Bible is saying you're not dressed till you wear love, God's love. I think it's only love that keeps us together. Now, I hope we understand that. As we think about it, you know, uh, Jason reminded us, we're not lovable. We all have a fallenness, and God's, uh, praise God that one day it'll be different. But today, it's something that I have to adorn, something that I have to put on. It's not a natural, it's not a given. It's a virtue above all to put on. And without that, there's no harmony. Because verse 15 says, you called to one body. You called to one body. And then Paul, what he does here, he says, listen, you all dressed up. But you got, and not that you don't have any, any place to go. It's not like on a prom night, you're all dressed, but you don't have a date to go. Paul is saying, listen, there's work to be done. Paul is saying, listen, all this dressing up that you've done, there is a reason, there's a purpose. And he continues on after that. He says in in verse 16 and 17, there's work to be done within the the community. And then he says, there are a list of seven things. The word of Christ might dwell in you richly. Verse 16 on, if you keep looking at that, and and that you would teach, that you would teach one another uh, you can't teach if you don't learn yourself. And then you exhort with all wisdom. You encourage. You, uh, the word exhort is a strong word. It's saying that you really have to go shake the person up. And that we would do that in all wisdom towards godliness. And singing psalms, singing hymns, and spiritual songs. And grace in your hearts to God. This uh, verse comes up somewhere else. Do you know where it is? In Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 21. Let me read that out to you, and then we'll have a quick contrast and a compare. Ephesians 5, 18 and 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I want you to understand the two things. One is the compliment. They, they seem to be complimenting each other because Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians is saying what? Be filled with the knowledge of the word of God. And these two coming together. It's when these two, two come to, these two come together, you have this stereophonic melody. Cool, isn't it? You know about the word of God. and You're being filled with the spirit. Only then that can happen. Because being filled with the word of God and filled with the spirit of God, one reshapes your heart, the other renews your mind. And together they mold you to the image of Christ. 
uh, and I just love the context on this. So you're all dressed up, and he's saying this about the community. The context is in the community. We can't be a Christian as an individual. Personal Christianity, or as they call the Sunday morning sofa Christians, that's the term, is not from the Bible. And I, I don't want to go into the detail, but I know some people have this in mind and says, you know, by the detail about the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs and the differences. I want you to notice that uh, uh, Paul does not say or Psalms or hymns or spiritual songs. It really talks about the, the, the variety, the way we can come together Glorifying God, encouraging each other, strengthening each other, exhorting each other strongly sometimes. Because when we understand the danger of where they are, you cannot just say, hey, you wouldn't do that if your child is crossing the road and there's a Mack truck coming at him. That's what this community should be about. And so it goes on in verses 18 to chapter 4 to verse 6 about the new practice. The new practice. That's where we sing. Listen, all this has happened. So then there must be this new practice. A new outlook, a new wardrobe, a new adorning, and now a new practice. And verses 18 to 21, he talks about the households, the way you will conduct yourself at home. Then in the society, verses 22 to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So what's happening till now is, you know, he has addressed the Colossian heresy. We looked at it last week, right? They, 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 they were making us think that Christian experience is a very emotional, a very uh, out-of-the-body kind of a, you know, a, a, a non uh, it's a mystical experience. And Paul is saying, no, it's an experience within the community. Five times in this passage, there is this expression, Lord or Master. Sorry, seven times, seven times. And what it's being said is that this Lordship of Christ should be evidenced in your daily routine, in your day-to-day -day life. The lordship is evidenced in that. And so I ask myself this question, right? I ask myself, saying that, you know, I, 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 I get this. I understand about Christ being complete, uh, Christ being in him, the, the fullness of God had dwelled bodily, and then he goes on to say, be complete in him. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on. If we think that we are here just so that we can come together and, and you know, sing songs or just worship God and go away, Paul is saying, no, there's more work. There's work to be done together. That we learn together that we talk to each other, encourage each other, prod each other to good works. 
And if it, if, if, if it comes to a point that we're not doing that, it's better that we shut the door and stay at home because if we come here and disobey God in the role that we are called to do, then we are being offensive to the cause of Christ. No wonder the world looks at churches and says, this is not the church that I want to be part of. So I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say anything more than this. I want to be honest. I want us to ask ourselves this. Are we willing to invest into each other's lives? Are we willing to speak into each other's lives? Are we willing to give each other the permission to say, listen, brother, when I make a mistake, come talk to me. And when you do, let me come and talk to you. And so that we can be together, learning together, renewing this knowledge of Christ, exhorting one another so that the melody that comes out of it, so that we, can, we have this joy as we sing together hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I pray that uh, the devil would have no foothold no foothold in our midst. That no brewing anger, no rage, no bitterness, root of bitterness that has caused to fall people down. Any semblance of this old nature, the works of the flesh is not the one that we demonstrate, but we will move on with a heart of mercy, of love, of kindness, of grace that God would be glorified in our midst, that we can see in each other the conformity of Christ and be encouraging. And I hope that is a reality. I hope that will be the truth. And so there is, uh, uh, just as a fresh reminder about who Christ is, I- I'm going to ask Sunaina to come up and sing a song for us. And... and um, it's, um, she, she'll give you a little more detail about it, but just le- let me read to you a, pass, uh, a paragraph. Thou art the eternal word, the Father's only Son, God manifest, God seen and heard, heaven's beloved one, in thee most perfectly expressed, the Father's glory shines of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou, that every knee to thee should bow. Uh, yet loving the on whom his love ineffably does rest, the worshippers, O Lord, above, as one with thee are blessed, of the vast universe of bliss, the center thou the sun, the eternal theme of praise is this, to heaven's beloved one. He is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I, I pray that in this community of faith, there are people who are called here to encourage, exhort, strengthen each other, that we can say that God indeed is the one who's glorified, that we can say together the Lord is God in our midst, and that he alone is glorified. Amen.